Hi, this is Ryan Bloom from Urban Bonfire. On today's episode of the Fireside Chat, architect Paul McLean of Los Angeles. Now, it would be easy to talk to Paul about having 270,000 followers on Instagram, or having worked on the one of the largest and most expensive homes ever in US history, or working on homes that are 10, 20, 60,000 square feet. But that's not the interesting part about Paul for me. What was interesting for me is learning about growing up in Ireland and how the inspiration of his window looking out is what actually created the notion and the concept of space for him and how he applies the same strategies of use of space, experiential aspects for his clients in 1800 feet, the same way as he does in 60,000 feet and how he has been a pioneer and visionary on the interactivity of indoor and outdoor space for much or all of his career. Enjoy the episode. I don't even know where to start. I normally uh, am not at a loss for, uh, for questions, but you know, one of the first things beyond architecture and real estate and, and all the things that we're gonna talk about um, I'd just like to know, given the, the sort of state of the world with, with COVID and, and, and how that's affecting everyone, no matter where they are and what they do, I just really more wanted to check in and ask about you, uh, your family, community, how everybody is, is doing in, 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 in your world. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. You know, we're doing okay. I mean, uh, we don't have, uh, luckily, uh, it's pretty bad in Southern California. Um, I think people don't realize that don't live here, you know, the idea is that everyone's living very suburban and far apart, but Los Angeles is a very dense city and there's a lot of people, you know, housing is a huge problem here. So a lot of people are living very close together. Um, it's been, you know, very, it's, it's been tough. We're super fortunate because we, we've been able to keep working from home. We're still working from home, hoping to go back soon. It's, it's a little hard, the collaboration side of, of work. It's really hard to keep that up, but uh, I mean, I'm just thankful we have stuff we can do and that we've been able to make a living. So many people can't. So uh, it's it's great that way. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully soon. A lot of people are getting vaccinated and hopefully that will speed up more. I'm very optimistic it's going to speed up faster and faster. And, you know, hopefully in a few months it'll it'll be in the rearview mirror. I uh, I agree with you and, and hope for exactly the same. If. Uh, yeah, what a. What an amazing thing! Just to to it it knows no uh, it knows no boundaries. It has uh, any way you slice it, in any way, shape, or form, it has had effect on uh, on us and everybody. Yeah, how's your family? Everybody. Are you guys okay? Thank you. We are uh, Montreal uh, or Quebec as a province has uh, the hot, one of the highest rates of uh, per capita, certainly in Canada. Um, we're currently in a uh, lockdown. We even have actually a government-imposed curfew that's currently on wow. here okay. from yeah. 8 p.m. until 5 a.m. unless you're essential uh, or you're walking a dog within one kilometer. I know given that you're from Ireland, I can speak in, yeah. in metric and one kilometer is okay. <laughs> you know, for our U.S. friends, 0.6 of a mile. Um <laughs> You know, without, you know, really those being the limiting factors, we are supposed to be sort of in the house. And we've seen our numbers drop in half in a That's few brilliant. weeks. Yeah. So it's working, but it's, uh, it's, it's been a ride. Yeah, it's it been really a real has. ride. Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very worrying as well, just from the mental health perspective for a lot of people, I think. And that's, I mean, obviously, we need to take it super seriously. I've had, you know, there's people, we, we've seen a lot of shutdowns in our job sites. Construction in California is considered essential, so it hasn't really shut down. But there have been a lot of people very sick and some people that have unfortunately passed away that, you know, subcontractors and contractors that we know and, and you know, consultants and it's been, it's hard, but, but I also think it's just, it's affecting and so many other levels as well, you know, yes. and the, the strains it's putting on relationships and everything. So God, I hope it's in the rear view mirror soon, you know? <laughs> as do I, as do I. Well, to turn to the more, maybe a more uh, positive subject positive, and, and yeah. thinking forward. Um, I guess one of 
so many overlaps. I don't know if you even know that uh, urban bonfire is actually included is uh, one of the features in, in one of your projects that, that I want to talk about uh, in a few minutes. But I, I guess one of the, if you look at your, your work, the, the sheer size and scale of what you do in so many of your projects, I don't know of an architect and design or architecture firm that has as many Instagram followers as, as a Kardashian, for example. And <laughs> you have obviously gone from, and they may be a client of yours, so, but, but you have taken something that is a, 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 a skill, an education, obviously a passion, and you put it on a, on a pedestal of scale that is almost euphoric in in its definition it is at the scale of the disneyland these sort of things that only i remember i'll give you i'll give you a bit of context um many many years ago in uh, i think 2000 the early 1992 or three i happened to have been visiting uh israel and i went yeah. to a movie i went to a movie theater there and if you remember the Film the bodyguard with uh, with yes. Kevin Costner yeah. and Whitney uh, Whitney Houston, and the shot onto this mansion with the pools and and the audience because that was something at that point the scale of that in Israel was almost unheard of, and people just went whoa because <laughs> of the sheer nature of what was possible and right. that by today's standards by you know by the types of projects you work on would seem almost humble. Um, how does somebody go from starting as an architect to the type of scale of project that you have the pleasure and the privilege of working on? Help me understand a bit of your story and, and a bit of your journey to what you do now. Well, um, it's, it's obviously, it, it was a journey and it doesn't happen overnight. And uh, I do, it's, it's, it's funny, we do tend to get a little bit pigeonholed on these really huge homes, but we do homes of all scales, you know, and, uh, uh, that's always been my passion. I mean, ever since I was a little boy, I wanted to be an architect, but I really only wanted to do houses. I've, I've never really had much interest in doing other types of architecture. Uh, so for me, it's always been homes. And um, I've firm, we've been, we're 20 years old now. And over those 20 years, we, we started doing, first project was a house that was about 1,800 square feet. Um, I was really lucky. That first project was, uh, I, I met a couple, they had a lot, they had some plans to do a house on it for kind of a Mediterranean home. But as they talked about it, they were just talking about a really contemporary open design. And at the end of the conversation, I said, look, you, 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 they really wanted me to just take these drawings and develop them. And I said, I don't think it makes sense based on what you're saying. And I think you should start over uh, or buy a different house. And that was like around September, 99. And on New Year's Day, her name is Patty. She called me back and she said, you know, we've, it's a new millennium and I want to do something brand new and we want you to design a house. And at the time, my wife and I were thinking of potentially going back to Europe. And we said, wow, you know, I, I was 30 and it was, uh, you know, to get that opportunity so early in your architecture career, it seemed like we should definitely stay and do that. So um, I stayed and uh, obviously I'm still here and uh, you know it just started over time the houses started to grow and we just kind of you know as we learned from that house 1800 square foot then the next house was a little bigger you know sometimes it was smaller at the beginning it was a lot of even remodels uh, a lot of historic houses just anything to bring food on the table um, just get the business going but there was I think sometimes when you look back, you can see some inflection points. And one definitely was when we did the house in on Blue Jay Way that Avigi ended up buying and we ended up remodeling it again with him. But I started that house in 2005 and it was completed in 2008. And the person that we designed it for couldn't afford it anymore because of the, the crisis and the economy. But it still sold for a lot of money at the time. And it's funny now, those numbers, you know, don't seem as crazy as, as compared to what's happened in the last 10 years, but yeah. both a lot of money. And, and uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, you know, that's how it often works is when people see something that is very successful in that sense, then, then the phone starts ringing. And uh, we found ourselves in this kind of strange situation that during the big recession, we were designing speculative, which seemed like. It's very strange, but by the time the recession was over, 
the people who were smart enough, I guess, to think about that, they had homes that were finished and that they could sell. And, and then, of course, there was not much competition out there. So everyone, you know, people paid a lot of money and there was premiums, you know, they were the highest selling per square foot in the neighborhood. And of course, that gets you a lot of attention. And, you know, everyone's a great architect when your houses are selling for a huge number. You know, if they don't sell, then they think you're a lousy architect. <laughs> so uh, that's just reality. So that just led us on a path. And, and the great thing about doing speculative homes at the time is, you know, they happen pretty quick. Uh, you know, you, we design them quick, we build them quick. Um, our passion is with homeowners to do homes for families or individuals. Um, we're lucky now that most of our work is in that direction, but that, that we'll always be grateful for those homes, the speculative homes and the people who helped us do them because they gave us a portfolio relatively quickly of projects that then instill confidence in people that would allow us to do what we really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And when you say it, it's an interesting thing or, or, or it's an important thing, you talk about the, uh, the ideal project at this moment is the where you can really create with a family, create that sense of it's not house, it's not walls and floor and ceiling, it's home and the emotional yeah. connection that that creates. That obviously has a tremendous amount of reward and also also a lot of challenge because those can be extremely subjective feelings in different people that are often hard to articulate you must be part sociologist part psychologist <laughs> part anthropologist i think you so leave all of those disciplines together and create a harmony and a, and a and a common vision with most likely very different stakeholders often even from the same family well, I think that's it's one thing. I mean, if people are thinking about a career in architecture, if you want to do residential architecture like we do, you really do have to enjoy people. I mean, some people like people and other people would rather not have too much contact with people. And you have to learn to be flexible. Um, I see, I tell our clients right at the beginning that no, all information is good. Like telling me that you love it is great. Telling me that you hate it is just as good because that's gonna help us get to that place that we need to be. We're lucky too, because we have obviously, uh, you know, a, a lot of homes to work on that if we have a great idea that we really feel passionate about, like we'll argue our corner, but if the client just doesn't like it or doesn't feel it's appropriate, we can set that aside. And we always know if we really like it, maybe another house will come along that we can apply that idea to. So we try not to get very uh, hurt or very over-attached to things that maybe don't match our clients. So it's really client-driven for us. And I think that's, um, you know, the hardest part is when you have, like, for example, a couple that, you know, have diametrically opposite views of what it should be and trying to navigate that so that both people feel like they're they're getting uh, the attention they deserve and their ideas are being validated. So that's where the therapy part comes in. But uh, we've learned over the years, you know, how to handle that. And I think, you know, we try and pull out of what everyone says, the positive. Uh, for example, right now, um, we're working on a house in, in, in Florida. And, you know, the other day, the client called me and they said, well, you know, we're really you know, happy about the way the floor plan is going, but really don't like the way the house looks. And, you know, my response to them was like, well, great, we've made great progress because we have a floor plan that you're comfortable with. Now we can see how can we adjust the way that feels and looks to make you happy on that side. Uh, So I I don't really spend a lot of time trying to pre-design the house or to have a, like an overarching vision. I feel like it comes organically from the and the program so until that kind of settles i mean we spend a lot of time looking at the site and trying to figure out what what's what's important what we need to edit out like almost like in a in a in a movie you know like we're screen editing so maybe there's a noisy stream below and we might push out a pool or a water feature so that people cannot walk out and see the noisy street and then use the water to help mitigate the sound you know so that like we call that spatial editing and maybe there's a neighboring house that we need to scream with vegetation or, or maybe we have to focus the house in a way to a view. So that takes a lot of our time and then trying to mesh that with the program. So I spend my time thinking about that, not thinking about the house. And then usually the house just kind of emerges from that. And then there's a phase of just trying to make it look pretty. 
Well, yeah, and I, and I think it's interesting because one of the things that I frequently talk about in, in presentations, whether it's with potential dealers or potential partners, th things of this type, is this worldwide movement towards urbanity. And I often quote the statistic that within 100 years, from 1950 to 2050, the proportion of people living in urban versus rural settings will have inverted itself. And my my hypothesis, and, and more as a, as, a, as a question to you, is my hypothesis is that when people move from living in five or 6,000 square feet on four acres to your point, 1,800 square feet with a deck that's 30 by 40, for example, the inherent role and responsibility of the architect design professional becomes far greater because you're dealing with far smaller amounts of space Right. which still needs to be maximized experientially. How do you feel about that? Is that as, as, as someone who's worked in, you know, as you say, 1800 square foot to, I don't remember the square footage of the one, but, and we'll so talk I, about that, but yeah, you're talking about something that is, you know, just an unbelievable scale. How do you find the inspiration to play in both of those arenas? Well, they're 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 both puzzles in a way, right? In different, I mean, in different ends. I mean, I would say, you know, for us, like our average home is probably between seven and ten thousand square feet. Um, but I would say that they're more like six to seven thousand square feet above ground. There's often basements for different reasons. So, you know, we're thinking about a home along that uh, along that size. Um, so those two are the extremities. But I, I do often feel like that. Our homes are not particularly—they're um, not particularly baroque. They're not particularly, you know, full of things. They're—they're they're relatively spare. Um, you know, someone once said, like, it's—it's it's interesting that you can get people who are, you know, have so much money to live in such simple surroundings. You know, in a way. But we're, we're really all about light and air, transparency, views to nature. I think those things are common everything in many ways the smaller houses is, is a more interesting challenge because you know those are the realities of what for for, for more people um, of how they're going to live and I think that on top of that then you're you're you're, you're dealing with more confined situations where you're trying to bring that same feeling and it's never more important as people urbanize more and I, I do feel that space is it's like the ultimate luxury in, in this world to have space around you is uh, to have space to be able to retreat and find quiet time, not hear noise, you know, get away from your screens. So these are the things that people are going to start to realize yeah. are true luxury. I mean, everyone can have an iPhone kind of these days and, you know, yes. consumer products are everywhere and they're cheap relatively, but, you know, to be able to, find peace and quiet and that moment of, you know, Zen in the day or a place where you feel comfortable, that's harder for people. And I think COVID has really brought that to the fore. And I hope, you know, going forward that we're all a bit more aware, you know, in terms of even urban planning, the importance of access to the exterior, importance of light. Um, these things can get played down, you know, when we always seem to design in, in the public sphere to minimum requirements for height. And, you know, I'd love to see, you know, out of this, a movement towards expanding, you know, for example, I think that building code is like, it's eight feet or 2.4 meters is the typical height of a room. I mean, I'd love to see cities requiring three meters, you know, for rooms because developers building apartments are always going to try and keep their costs down, you know, as best they can. And sure. these are going to stick around for hundreds of years, potentially, and people are always going to be stuck. So that's something that's really, you know, on my mind. Um, so I think even if you have a small piece of land or a small program, you have to find ways and, and look for ways to have what you just mentioned, Ryan, that feeling of expanse. And, and you know, you can do it even if you don't have to have a beautiful city view. You can create a focal point at the end of a small garden that and just open each room and turn to it. You can add skylights to pick up the sky during the day so you feel the movement of the day. And all these things can be applied even in very small projects and to give people a sense of well-being and happiness. And obviously... For in every, you know, is is massively important. And being, you know, I, I grew up in a very modest uh, public housing home in Dublin. But one of the nice things about it was that it had a really big window in the front garden. You know, 
and I used to play there when I was a little boy and just in front, because you know, the sun's not out much in Ireland. And, uh, you know, playing there in the sun inside. And it was a window that pretty much filled up the whole wall of the room. And it's, it was the best thing in the house. So, I mean, that was a tiny house. Um, so all these, these things can be applied at any scale. Um, at the other end, working on really large homes, we really have to think of them differently. They don't act or feel particularly like homes. We try and create spaces within them that give people that sense of uh, more intimacy, but they really work like small hotels or you know resort spaces and we kind of think of them that way. Sure. Well, it's interesting. I, I wanna come back to something you mentioned, which was the, the notion of the term space. And my, um, my opinion or my hypothesis or, or, or gut, however you want to define it, is that for a really long time, the term space within the architecture design, even the consumer community, had this preconceived notion that it was interior. And when you were talking about the exterior, it was the outdoor space or it was the outdoors. Yeah. It was a different definition and context. And I am seeing, and I think that this has been a factor or, or a trend for some time. And to your to your point a moment ago, I do believe that COVID has been an accelerant in this factor because the outdoor still, even in incredible homes where massive investment has been made on design, architecture, and indoor, in so many cases, there is still this tremendous disconnect and the outdoors is now catching up. Are you in your practice in terms of consumer request or are you from an ideology perspective, do you see a different definition today of outdoor space, how it integrates its importance, um, whether that was a specific moment in time where you said, shit, I gotta put more focus on this or has it always been part of your core belief system? For me, it's always been part of the core belief system, but I do absolutely agree with you, Ryan, that there's been uh, a, a movement into thinking of that. And I see that at every level, you know, that um, when, when I was growing up, you know, gardens, especially, you know, the back garden was kind of just this afterthought. Um, and even in um, very small or, or humble homes, when I go back to Ireland and see them there, is part of the living space now you know people have you know, they've been building out there putting in fire pits they've been putting out there even if they've only got hundred square feet you know or less, they're making it part of their home and i think that's fantastic i'm trying to envision and i'm taking myself back to one of my favorite movies of all time called the commitments i'm sure you i'm sure you know the film by alan yeah. parker which was set yeah. in, in dublin i believe and i'm trying to put myself in the in the in the vernacular of what you're describing. I, I don't want yeah. to interrupt you, please. No, and it is, uh, you know, that, that particular place, uh, Darndale, where they uh, set that was just down the road from where I grew up and uh, it has a bit of a checkered history. Uh, you know, you can kind of see the, 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 the architects at the time, as I look back at it now, that what they were trying to achieve um, made, makes sense then but it just did not work out you know it's uh it's interesting too when it it's something they were trying to create like a dense urban and small environment you know in the outskirts of the city but um generally people don't move to the outskirts of the city for a dense urban environment and uh you know i think also public housing can be difficult that way because it it cut down on the private ownership part, you know, so they try to create community spaces, but as often happens in those type of projects, the money is never considered for maintaining the public spaces, you know, that like everyone has brilliant ideas and they design potentially beautiful things, but then nobody puts any money into maintenance going forward or considers that as part of the life cycle. And then these spaces become barren and deserted and people then don't take part of them. And one of the more interesting things, even in that particular estate of homes, is that when the government started to privatize it, they started to claw back the public space and then give it to people as part of their, you know, their ownership. And that then that helped improve it. So slightly off topic. You know, but, uh, no, but, but, uh, but an important one, because I think to your, to, it's interesting. And, and, I'll, and I'll just give you a an idea or a window into where I was going with this. I remember about a, maybe about two years ago, I was in Toronto 
um, yeah. our big neighboring city. My yeah. son was there for a, for a hockey tournament and I was walking uh, to where it, it was in the middle of downtown at this beautiful school. And I see this um, development, this forthcoming luxury, la creme de la creme type of condo project going up. And I remember taking notice that these huge renderings that were really trying to promote the vision of, of the project, three out of the six renderings were about outdoor space. And we're in Canada where it's frozen six months of the year. And it really had me thinking about it. And then seeing the project delivered a couple of years later, and just to go back and see it, and what tremendous disconnect there was from the, the vision or the illusion of the outdoor to what was actually delivered. And I think to your point, a lot of that goes, comes down to, you know, developers often get very um, penny wise and dollar foolish on the implementation of common area aspects like outdoors. And yet it's one of the huge drivers and one of the big difference makers experientially of, of living in one of these places. Exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, I think, and I, I mean, maybe we definitely see homeowners side, uh, an awareness that's been developed through COVID, which is hard to stay away from as a topic. But, you know, there's definitely, I think people are coming to us now and they're thinking more critically about space and how it might be used. And you, you just have to hope that that's going to translate into the public sphere as well. And I do have, you know, some, some friends and coworkers who are a lot younger than me who are, are looking for rental housing, for example. And this is top of their mind. It's like outdoor space, you know, communal space, you know, gyms, swimming pools here, obviously, because the weather is a little warmer. But, you know, that how, how, you know, what's the right size? You know, where will there be a sense of community? These are the things that people are looking for. And, um, you know, I think successful development is going to have to take, and people are going to be more critical, I think, after going through this experience. So hopefully it will spur people on to, to think a bit more creative. And uh, I think, you know, part of that falls back on the public sphere because, you know, developers, let, let's not fool ourselves, you know, developers are, uh, they want to have successful projects, but they want to make money first and foremost, and they want to get out as quick as they can. And who can blame them? That's their business model, right? So it's okay. The community, you know, to, to push back against that and set the boundaries. And I think for having had a lot of experience with developers, you know, the biggest issue is always uh, getting concrete answers. I mean, you know, not being subjective. So, uh, you know, it, I, I don't think you're going to find that just because you, you know, you mandate that ceiling heights have to be higher or that a certain amount of money has to be put aside for public maintenance. Um, it's not going to stop people building. They're just going to happy to know those, as long as they know those parameters up front, if it makes sense, they'll do it, you know, but what really bothers them is when the parameters keep changing, you know? I want to now, if I can shift from the idea of high density developer living on one end of the extreme, spatially, yeah. to the one. And are we okay to talk about it? Is that, is that we talk about it a little bit. It's not my, it's not my biggest su subject, you know. <laughs> it's, um, I think because it's so out there, you know, from the rest of what we do. But we can have a little chat about so, it. Well, only because I got to tour it. Um, I was in Los Angeles, uh, let's see, about October 2019 for the West End Design Fair where we exhibited. And we got to do a site tour, of course, and couldn't take any pictures. And you know what? Let, let's not even focus on this project, but let's focus on this style of home where you say, you know, average project you just said is about 10,000 square feet, which to the average person, five times the size of my personal home. Now yeah. I live in Montreal, very traditional architecture, more density in most neighborhoods, stylistically like you described from Ireland, very, you know, that's just stylistically. But the idea of 10,000 square feet to me is, you know, I wouldn't even know what to do with it. Um, and I think there are some people who just build because they can build that much and why not maximize every inch on their lot. When you're talking about that scale of home, that still is for a family of two or three or four or five, for example. Right. How do you not treat it, in your words, like a hotel or a resort, which it can become very easy when you have three kitchens and 14 bedrooms and bowling alleys, and it is a very resort-like feel. But even at 10,000 square feet, at that level of scale, 
how do you create the home feeling of intimacy and, and that sort of hug that the average person is looking for in that amount of, of space? I think, first of all, it, it, it sounds like it is a lot of space. Don't get me wrong on that. Um, but some of that and, and the pattern of development that we tend to be involved in um, tends to generate more space for, for several reasons. Um, but the, I think part of the pro- problem on some, a part of the reason that these homes tend to get as large as they do where we are is because the land value is so high. And, um, you know, if you're going to build a home and it's going to cost a lot of money to build it, and California is a very expensive place to build, um, people tend to think whether they, everyone's thinking, you know, in the long term, like, what if something happens? What if I don't want to stay there? It doesn't matter what the budget is. Everyone's aware that things can change. And if you build a bigger house, you can probably, it's almost like an insurance policy that if you have to sell it, you'll probably get your money back. Okay. Like I can give you like just in a big round kind of number way, but if you buy for like a million dollars and if you have to build a 5,000 square foot house and that's, um, you know, a thousand dollars a foot, that's $6 million, you know, well, you know, houses might sell for like a thousand dollars a foot or $1,200 a foot. So, you know, you'll get your basically money back, right? Maybe, but it's a bit, you know, on the fence. If you same million dollar lot, if you build, you know, 10,000 square feet, and there's a, you know, a disc, like the, the, it could be that you might generate a potential profit of two or $3 million, you know, then everyone feels more sure of their investment. So some of that is to do with what the size is. There's always that component. Um, but, you know, you'd be amazed how quickly um, people, when we start to program out houses, you know, everyone wants a smaller house until we start to list all the spaces they want. And um, some of the space is just more generous, it's like, space within the volume like so like a bigger living room with higher ceilings and so on and so maybe instead of it being 400 square feet or you know 40 meters squared it's like 800 you know but it's just making a better bigger space so some of the space gets used up our houses don't necessarily at that scale have 14 bedrooms they may only have four but they have larger rooms larger bathrooms larger closets but another thing that we try and do is just identify if it is only a couple of people they'll probably be living on one floor you know and then the rest is for maybe adult children who come to visit or teenagers and they may go down below and then they may have their own living space on there so so it kind of tends to the perfect example I had once was a client wanted to build a 60,000 square foot house, which is exactly huge because she ended on an enormous, but she wanted to feel intimate because just her and her husband. <laughs> and what we did there is we, we created a central core. So the master bedroom had its own stair, which came directly down behind the kitchen family room. And they basically would live just in the master bedroom, kitchen family room area. And then the rest of the house just kind of, flew out in different directions for there and could open up. And when they did do these, they would entertain three, 400 people at a time. Wow. They would, you know, then the whole house would be used, but they could have this more intimate scaled space that was probably about 2000 square feet. That was the center of their living experience. Mm-hmm. You know, so we can play with ideas like that to try and make these houses work better for people. But a lot of it is just, you know, open big spaces taking advantage of the view and the light and the fact that we can do that and then we're not in a dense urban environment and 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 that's where and and i completely agree with with your assessment on it i what i what hits me with with that subject is the historically and, and i'm sure there are cases that fall outside of this you can spend a lot of money on anything but you know to activate outdoor space is typically significantly less costly per square foot than indoor space. So to me, it's almost like you can, if you have the available land, you can sacrifice some of the indoor square footage, actually come out economically ahead, but experientially equal to or greater than because it is, I've always used the term, not always in the last few months, it's sort of bond on me that when you plan home or at least to the layperson for the scale that you're, you're doing it at but I know these types of things but when I'm planning my outdoors I've got a lot more of a whiteboard because 
I believe the outdoors becomes a bit of an executive summary for people's lot for people's style of living. Yeah. They can pick and choose the experience, whether that's cooking, whether that's gardening, whether that's health and wellness, whether that's spa, they can really morph that in very non-linear ways. And I think that's, yeah. that's one of the beauties of, of the outdoor doors. Yeah, it is. We're, we're starting a project. Do you feel that in your, in your... Absolutely. Yeah. We're, we're starting a project in Denver right now and uh, it's in a nice, you know, inner suburb location, but the lot is relatively large uh, for that neighborhood. I would say most lots in that neighborhood would be 5,000 square feet, 500 square meters. And this one is double, but the house we're designing isn't any bigger than the rest of its neighbors. And uh, so the idea is that how to work with the outdoor space is gonna be just as critical as the indoor space. And that's been a big driver for the client um, that they want to be able to make the most of the seasons that they have there, which are relatively short and changeable, but just the different environments and different experiences outdoors that they can have. And we will need to, to keep that kind of inner suburb density. We'll have to use elements ex like exterior walls and you know uh, uh, covered cabanas type spaces and so on to to create that sense of urbanity on the lot as well that they need so uh, absolutely but I think um, and I think you know not talking real estate too much but you know we we do tend to when we talk to clients we always try and you know help them understand what what makes sense from a real perspective without spending like it is their dream home and we want it to be their dream home specific to them because i do truly believe if you build a beautiful home you know there has to be an emotional connection to that if someone is going to sell it they're going to buy it based on how they feel about it and every home is never perfect for the next person it's always missing something so we don't want to spend our time trying to figure out who the next person is we're trying to figure out who this person is and make it work for them so you know we would discourage someone from you know designing a house with no bedrooms except for you know the one master bedroom but you know if they like should we have four or five bedrooms i'd be like well you know works for you um you know three or four or five and then I'm sure if you ever have that problem and you need to sell it someone else will be happy with it so i think creating that emotional connection to the property and the land and the house is more important necessarily than being a slave to the market. Yeah, well, I mean, that always, it, it, it to me comes back the same way as the, at, at, a defin, at a definition level, when you set up or you start a company, there is an inherent difference in feeling, I think, from the entrepreneur or whoever builds it when it is being built just to flip. I'm building this to sell versus yeah. I'm building a legacy project that I have. If I ever sell it, great, but that's not my intention. My intention going. is to build something that is, that is a legacy that I will, yeah. you know, hopefully God willing pass on to my children. And, and yeah. I think there's a very, there's a fundamental difference. One yeah. is very tactical and one is very, and one is very emotional in, in many yeah. ways. Almost romantic, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 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 I never started Urban Bonfire with the intention of, you know, what does it mean to sell there? Let's build it. It just was never part of my thinking. It was, how do I, how do I share this, this feeling or this experience from sitting around a, a bonfire pit, uh, you know, in a house that my parents bought when I was six years old for, for $28,000 that is still on stumps with no foundation even today, 41 years later but the greatest joy of my life. And how do I impart that through what we do in our designs to other yeah. people in its essence? That's it. That's brilliant. It's yeah. never about anything else. Yeah, I think so. For same for me, I mean, I never set out with a strategy in mind, you know, to um, develop the business or it wasn't about being a business. It was about creating architecture and it still is. And I mean, it's, it's just great. I still feel like I want to pinch myself to, you know, I get to do something I really like. People pay me for it, you know, which is uh, really amazing. Like, I mean, I'd probably still be doing it if they didn't pay me. You know? so, but isn't, isn't, isn't that the greatest thing someone could say that even if yeah. I wasn't being paid for yeah. it, I would still do it? I mean, who could ask for a more authentic experience? Yeah, and I, I try and instill that to my kids and other you know, young people I mean, that just trying to find something that you've got some passion about, you know, don't worry about 
what's going to make the most money, you know, because really if you're so unhappy at it, you're going to have a miserable feeling if you have a little bit more money. Better to find something and your passion and hopefully if you're good at something, it usually leads to good results. You know, that way works out, you know. It usually does. If you make good choices working towards something, even if you don't know what it is yet, but working yeah. in the right way, it yeah. usually leads you on the right path. Absolutely. We've talked a lot about, you know, from an architecture, from your design perspective, your experience and the value. And I want to come back. The last question I want to ask you or talk about on, on outdoors, obviously your project, your scope your vision is incredibly progressive and, and and future thinking in terms of the realm of possible over the last whether it's five or six or ten years have you seen a different psychology from the consumer from your clients on outdoor space before you even have to bring it to them are you seeing a, a dynamic shift in in people's appreciation for willingness to invest in the prioritization of outdoor spaces and i acknowledge california with its weather far easier but if you use denver as an example far more seasonality or or other markets that you work in yeah seeing a shift in 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 psychology of, of your client base very very much um i would say that if we step back 10 years we always ask people we work with to put together a lookbook of some kind or Pinterest or whatever it is today, Instagram. But back then it was mainly magazines. But uh, the focus back then was always on interior spaces. And I would say when we get that lookbook from people today, uh, at least 50% of it is exterior space. And uh, I think people are really just thinking about living outdoors. And, you know, I feel like... Uh, there's even a, a lot of climate. What's been most surprising to me is we start to work in different climates um, because we have a couple of projects in Canada right now with one in Whistler and one outside Vancouver and Fort Langley. Um, but it's, it, and we're also working, for example, in Thailand and in England. And um, the things that people are most attracted, the reason they kind of come across the world to talk to us um, is that, idea of indoor outdoor living that developed i think really developed in california in the last century i mean it is the that's what attracted me here uh it is the 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 home of residential design you know experimental residential design for the last hundred years and you know a combination of factors you know being a new city with uh, a kind of suburban kind of approach gave people room to do things a varied topography um, people with the financial resources, and then, of course, the big one, the weather. You know, those things yes. all were what got that going here, but people are very attracted to that um, to that model. And, and we're finding when we do it in other places that, you know, the even if we, we for example, don't open up the spaces directly so much to the exterior, perhaps because the climate doesn't allow us to do it so often, um, we still that people are very attracted to the idea of this indoor-outdoor connection. That's the, that's the basis of all our work. And, you know, even if you... I've, I've had the experience of being in one of our homes in Germany in February with two feet of snow on the ground and sitting in the kitchen with, like, you know, five-meter-high glass that runs for, like, 10 meters and just watching the hawks, you know, diving through the snow to, to find food. And, you know, I'm like, this works. It works everywhere. And those moments where in these more, you know, temperate climates where you can actually be outdoors become actually more special, I think. And uh, there's a, the certain days where it's just perfect. Um, you know, we have to, you know, it's interesting, like in, in Vancouver, we have a lot of outdoor space in, our, in the project we're working on, but it's covered because of the, the, the amount of moisture. But, you know, down here in California, for people like me who come from cold places, <laughs> I need the cover just as much, you know? So it's not that different at the end of the day. And, you know, both of them have, we install heaters, uh, a lot of fireplaces, and they work equally well in both places, uh, just maybe shorter in one longer season than the other, you know? Well, you've named the two actual markets where we have had the greatest uh, success, California and British Columbia, are that if you were to isolate province or state where for stylistic reason, uh, you know, value of real estate, the 
the prioritization of outdoor, they are really our two, two out of our three top markets in, in North America. So yeah. I think it very much follows suit with the psychology of that type of well, uh, homeowner is what they're looking for. I have to say, I, I, I miss, I used to, before COVID, I was up in Canada six times a year and I really miss it because it's like my, British Columbia is one of my favorite places and I always look forward to stepping off the plane, you know, at uh, in Vancouver and, and it's kind of, that's one, one thing I'm really looking forward to the end of COVID that we at least get back to Canada. <laughs> so. Well, speaking of Canada and, and your, your origin or your roots in, in Europe, I, have you been to Montreal? No, and I have two clients from Montreal and I was supposed to go this year, well, you know, 2020, and uh, I am dying to go to Montreal and I would love to come visit you when I get there. It's, uh, it's one of well, a spectacular place, I think. I, it, it is, and it is, it is a magical place and I'm obviously biased because I, I live here. Um, but I think you will see, and if you come, it would be my great honor to give you a, a bit of a tour. Um, you know, old Montreal was at one point a walled fortress city when it was run by, by France and still yeah. has, you know, buildings to the 1700s cobblestone. You can still see the old, my, my former office was in the horse stables of the, uh, the governor of, of New France at the time. Yeah. That's how old these, these structures are. And then a five or six minute drive and you are in absolute, completely modern, technolo technologically driven architecture and, and everything in between. So it would be such an honor to, uh, to give you a walking tour. Yeah, I, I, I would love, I would love to see you up here. Yeah, I was, I was just, we, we often talk about that, but I think people have around the world, you know, especially Europeans have the impression that everything in America, North America is new. And, uh, but the reality is that places like Montreal are, are as old as most European cities are. There's not much that survives from pre-1600 in Europe anyway. And so you were walking around Montreal and, or Philadelphia and it doesn't feel that different to Dublin or, you know, or Frankfurt or, or actually Frankfurt's worse because there's not that much left after the war. But you know what I mean? It's like really interesting. It is still very, very dense and European in its in its scale. And even here, uh, people you know with tremendous financial means, in many cases, will choose smaller, more dense living in right. favor of experience near the farmers market, near the canal, right. near the right. rather than bigger and more removed. And being far more interesting. Removed. Yeah, exactly. You know, in many cases. Yeah, that's something that wow. you know. Going back to our earlier conversation, that people, as this planet completely urbanizes, I mean, the the the, the trick is going to be how can we create more of that feeling versus you know the kind of monotonous high rise development that one often sees in in newer cities around the world, and it's always. Again, it's a time and money. It's always time and money. Everyone trying to do things fast. And I think one of the problems with, or had been one of the problems with modernism is that so much was built after the Second World War and built so cheaply and so quickly. And I think people saw the idea of doing something in, the, in a kind of contemporary modern style as a way to save money because they were thinking, oh, well, we don't have to add all this decoration so we can do this, these buildings that turned out to be horrible to live in because... They were just so cheaply put together. That's one thing I feel that we are very fortunate that we live in an age where we can take a lot of those ideas that were just spectacular, that people really were so innovative in the first part, you know, in the middle part of the last century in terms of residential design. And then we can work those ideas in a way where they're actually viable. They don't leak. You know, the houses don't get too hot or too cold. And you can really enjoy what they meant you to enjoy, you know, from that style. Absolutely right. And, and, you know, coming back full circle to the idea that there is, while people often use the terms house and home interchangeably, I, I think they are actually very different. In certain Thanks. cases, they do overlap, but they can, they can yeah. be mutually exclusive in many ways. Yeah, very, very true. And we're, that's what we're hopefully in the business of, creating homes. We're fortunate that we have right now a client and we're now doing a house for their daughter, which is really exciting so we've had the pleasure of 
the daughter growing up in a house we designed and now we get to design a house for her family to come and that's got to be one of the most satisfying things that i can really think about in our business the idea that people are still committed <laughs> well it, it certainly speaks to a relationship because you know someone doesn't you know refer or have a have a child want to work with the same architect just because the house was pretty it, yeah. it doesn't it, it has to be far more um uh, granular and, and intimate than that even if it's in the subconscious i believe well that, thank you for saying that but i hope so that's very much true i'll tell you it's funny obviously not on the same scale as, as envisioning and, and designing somebody's home but one of the great joys of my career or in urban bonfire is when we have you know someone that was one of our early adopters and had one of our first kitchens here locally and will say my son and my daughter-in-law or my daughter and son-in-law just purchased the home and I'd like to get them one of your kitchens as a gift because I know how it impacted how much I use it and enjoy it and that that is just the ultimate sort yeah. of to me that's the ultimate it, it's it's the testimonial on steroids it's, it's yeah just absolutely wonderful. yeah well, brilliant wonderful. paul i i've not only have i enjoyed meeting you face to face first of all i'm uh, i was uh, very very honored to be included in one of your projects i i don't take it lightly and and thank you uh thank you for it it, it really it was uh it was really quite quite an honor for us to be part of something that you've created at that level of scale. And um, your work I find incredibly inspiring because even though it is by virtue of scale and size and, and cost far beyond the realm of anything I would ever envision as a home, it has nothing I've ever seen in your work, your site, your Instagram has ever remotely come off as uh, inauthentic, Austin everything that I can see in every level of detail, there is, there's thoughtfulness. And right. I think that you, you have really beautifully um, fused together meaningfulness in, even in, in large scale. And that is not an easy feat. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. That, that's just wonderful to hear that. And it's going to make my day hearing that, you know, so. <laughs> that was kind. Well, I will uh, hopefully, whether you're in Montreal first, yeah. I'm in LA first, uh, as soon as we're, we're able to travel, yeah. it would be my greatest pleasure to uh, have a meal with you and break bread and, and, and continue our discussions. It'd be nice to have we're open restaurants and we can travel. That would be great. <laughs> I look forward to that. Thank you again, um, Mark. Thank Thanks you for the time. Thank you for the time. I wish you and your family continued health and wellness and safety and I will, uh, I will speak to you very soon. Thank you. Same to you. Take care. Bye now. Thank you. Be well. Bye-bye. Thanks again. What an amazing discussion. I feel like I have a kindred spirit in, in Paul. His articulation of his youth and story and how these incredibly meaningful parts of his life play into everything he does, it really, really resonated with me. I feel like I have a new friend in Paul and here is someone who has everything in the world to boast about from the size of his following to the size of his projects to the types of clients he works with and yet there is a beautiful, soft, sensitive humility to him that makes him an absolute pleasure to speak with. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. Please join us on the Fireside Chat. If you'd like, great place to find us on Spotify, Apple or Google or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. Drop a comment, suggest a guest, or maybe an idea you'd like to share at Urban Bonfire on LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.